Yeah, hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Ancient Modern. Uh, today I'm very uh, happy to have with me Caleb Ontiveros, who um, has had a very interesting background, both to do with classics and with text. So he's obviously a perfect guest for Ancient and Modern. So Caleb, um, well, first of all, welcome to welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so I wonder if we could just start off talking about that that background, because as I understand it, you were originally a graduate student in philosophy, and then you got into tech that way, right? Yeah, that's right. So I went to uh, graduate school for philosophy for a bit, and then uh, I hopped out to do uh, tech work, basically. Um, I enjoyed grad school quite a bit, but I learned that becoming a philosophy professor was Probably not the ideal track for me for a number of reasons. And the barrier to entry for tech work is quite low and it's uh, intellectually interesting. There's a lot of stuff to do. So it's uh, where I made my move. So can I ask, um, what were you particularly interested in when you were a philosophy grad student? Were you into ancient philosophy in particular or was that something that sort of uh, came along the way? It was not my main focus. My primary focus was initially in philosophy of religion. Uh, I went to Notre Dame. And then also in ethics and political philosophy. So, of course, there's some relation there. But my primary interest was not in, say, historical ancient. Okay. So um, did you have, did you have uh, maybe it's asking too much, but did you have any kind of uh, Catholic religious background when you were at Notre Dame or just happened to go there? Because I know it's no, a Catholic my background, school, right? it, it is a Catholic school. My background is in evangelical Christianity. I'm not a Christian, but... I've always been interested in philosophy of religion, uh, both in terms of initially arguments for and against the existence of God, but also other ways of thinking about uh, religion or how we ought to think about religion given our current place and time. Great, yeah, interesting. So, uh, okay, so this, is, so then you got into Stoicism. So, so why Stoicism in particular? I mean, because uh, with that background, I'm thinking or maybe you would have studied Aquinas or Augustine or one of these other you know, great uh, religious philosophers or Kierkegaard, who knows. So what was it about Stoic texts that, that grabbed you? I think Stoic texts were initially uh, have eminently practical uh, and practical. Uh, so excellent combination of theory and practice, I suppose. I came across Stoicism. Um, initially in some courses in undergrad, I read Epictetus. It didn't actually stand out to me, his work initially. Um, probably mostly because I was just thinking about it from a sort of technical, you know, meta-ethics uh, lens. And then I came across Stoicism later by reading Nassim Taleb. He has some bit on Seneca in um, Anti-Fragile, I believe, or Stoicism generally. And then at that point, I went back and read uh, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca's letters. And I found it uh, much more useful at that point in time. I think when you read a given piece, that what that the time when you uh, approach a particular philosophy matters quite a lot for how one uh, approaches it and how it impacts you. So especially for things like Stoicism or other, say, more religious type philosophies or philosophies of life. Yeah, it's funny. I remember, so when I was an undergraduate, I, I had to read Seneca. He was kind of on some kind of a reading list. So I was reading some of Seneca's letters and um, 
my dear mother has some sort of claustrophobia and she doesn't go into she doesn't like going to tunnels and on the underground they are on the metro things like that on the subway you're talking to an american you need to get my dialect right anyway so um i remember reading seneca's letters and there's a couple of letters i don't know if there's one specifically about going into tunnels maybe there was one about uh worries about travel or going on a ship or something but i remember translating this bit of seneca for my mother and this is you know <laughs> Before modern Stoicism, um, I just had this, you know, just I think probably a lot of students have had this moment where they're reading Seneca and they think, wow, it's just very practical. It's very applicable to, to life. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a number of um, psychological insights, of course, as the view of emotional beliefs, one of the most striking Stoic views um, is in all, say, the big three Roman Stoics. Uh, and then there are a number, I think, especially in Seneca in particular, a number of different uh, asides or letters he has focusing on uh, particular uh, aspects of you know, social life, whether it's managing fame, success, or dealing with pressures from the crowd, what have you. Right. Okay. So then um, it's really interesting because we live, we live in interesting times because, you know, you know, one of the things I got into, uh, sort of like, you know, you got into Stoicism, kind of for, for no reason, it felt like for, for sort of reasons I didn't understand. One of the things I got into was Buddhist-style meditation, which obviously a lot of people have gotten into in the West over the past few years. And um, I guess I got into it when it was still pretty analog. Still, you know, people would just meet up in groups or meditate at home, and they, they turned to books. And, you know, I, was, there was starting to be some things on the internet and then more recently, there's been all these apps, right? Um, Headspace was a big one. Uh, so all these meditation apps, uh, mindfulness apps, etc. So, um, so I guess it, so, it sort of stands to reason in some sense that if there are people interested in Christianity and Stoicism and Epicureanism and all the rest, there, there's going to be an app for that, as they say. <laughs> Hopefully that's not too reductive a term. So you've developed a, an app called Stoa, right? Which is... Um, which is an app for stoic style meditation, or is it stoic style mindfulness? Is, is that how you would describe it? I would say it's uh, an app focused on the theory and practice of stoicism. And one aspect of uh, practice is meditation or contemplative uh, exercises uh, more generally. So that's how, that's how I would put it. Um, there is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy that is influenced by mindfulness or based therapy and that shares quite a lot in common with uh, stoicism um, both cognitive behavioral therapy and stoicism have this sort of cognitive model of emotion that i gestured at earlier which is that uh, our beliefs uh, impact how we uh, experience the world and often it's much more useful to focus on our thoughts or beliefs particular cognitive distortions we might have uh, rather than say different subconscious elements or one's history or something like this that other uh, therapies or philosophies might uh, take, take those other routes. So yeah, that's how I put it. Um, it's stoicism, focusing on the theory. You've got conversations with different philosophers, psychologists, uh, different lessons on what stoicism is, and then put that into practice with a number of contemplative exercises, some of which are standard meditations, others are more stoic-infused. Right, so you've raised something very interesting already, which is this sort of uh, interaction also with cognitive behavioral therapy. So 
we live in a world where we don't we don't just have all the sort of great religions and um, philosophies of the past to choose from. We also have sort of these modern psychological techniques, which are you know which are therapies and in a very real sense, um, just as Epicureanism and Stoicism can be can be seen as, as therapies. Um, and yeah, if you read, so I was just reading the Anchoridion, Epictetus's Anchoridion, you know, the dagger with my students for actually a history of political thought course. But you know, there's a very, it's a very clear and striking opening to do with this division into, you know, there are things you can control and there are things that you can't control. And I've always loved that, um, except that, <laughs> except that I've kind of uh, fallen out of love a little bit with it over time because um, and I have this issue a little bit with cognitive behavioral therapy too sometimes, which is, it seems to say there are things you can't control. And I definitely agree with that. There's so many things you can't control. And then it, says, it seems to say, oh, there's things you can't control. And those, it often seems to suggest that the, the things that you can't control include your, your thoughts. And I don't know if I'm getting this wrong, but, that, but that, that I think um, that's actually kind of difficult sometimes, right? So I, I've kind of moved more towards the position now, like there are things you can't control, which is like your life and the universe and how things are going to go in Ukraine, et cetera. Sure. And it also includes like your thoughts. So, <laughs> so then what you can control, I suppose, is, uh, at this point is just sort of your actions. Um, does that make sense? Have you had, have you had this, a similar evolution or do you, do you still think thoughts are something you, you really can work with quite effectively? Well, there are different forms of thought, right? So there are, say, initial reactions or something of this sort. There's you know, you're driving and then particular thoughts pop into your head. This sort of thing, it does not seem correct to say that you have control. But longer style beliefs, like this is something I value or um, particular patterns, if you notice patterns of reactions, that sort of thing that you want at least can have responsibility over and can shape. So maybe another way to think about the dichotomy of control from Epictetus is a view on what we fundamentally are. And in Epictetus's view, what we fundamentally are, are reasoning beings. So because we, that's what we are, we have the ability to make judgments and make decisions. Uh, and that's it. Um, and of course, these might be influenced uh, in particular ways, or some decisions might be harder than others. But at the end of the day, that is what um, uh, we are and what makes our character. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of, a, it reminds me a lot of Aristotle. Well, I mean, you know, Aristotle's has, Aristotle seems to have several different definitions of man or, or hu human being, anthropos. But one of them definitely seems to be that, you know, man is a rational uh, animal as well as a political animal. Man is also mm -hmm. a rational animal. Um, so it seems to have a, a similar strain um it's kind of interesting that they are just thinking of this sort of world we're in with all these options yeah there's there's stoic meditation apps there's not so much sort of um uh of the the tradition of the academy or of or of uh, the lyceum i don't know if there are any sort of peripatetic uh, communities out there online or or any kind of hardcore platonists i mean there probably are but yeah well what is a hardcore platonist it's a, maybe a little bit harder to come up with a count of that. The Aristotelian makes more sense. Uh, but um, I think a, a number of modern aspects are quite close to what technically would be uh, the Aristotelian view. So um, 
the hardcore stoic view is that virtue is the only thing that is good, that is of fundamentally of value. And there are some modern stoics that uh, don't obviously subscribe to that view and they might think that have something a little bit closer to the sort of standard Aristotelian type view. Um, so I, to some extent, I think the Aristotelian view is uh, almost not entirely, this is not entirely true, but you can get a lot of the same benefits from modern Stoicism in a way. Yeah, so when you talk about the hardcore Stoic view, is that kind of along the lines of you're entirely kind of self-sovereign and virtue is its own reward, and therefore you can't, as it were, sort of be happy on the rack? Because I, I remember there's a passage in the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle where he says, no man can be happy on the rack, the rack being the sort of torture implement. Um, right. And the idea is, for Aristotle, yes, there are things you can do with your mind and you can, you can try and be rational and you can have the various parts of your soul aligned. But ultimately, a flourishing life is also one that has these external features, uh, you know, good, uh, the right kinds of friendship and living in the right kind of uh, civic communities. Um, so is that is that what you mean? So 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 you saying so modern Stoicism does have a little bit of give in that in that Aristotelian uh, dimension? Aristotelian well, I would say some some contemporary Stoics certainly have that kind of view. They or at least uh, don't explicitly subscribe to the view that the only thing that matters is virtue and whether or not you're on the rack has to do with uh, whether you want to be on the rack or not. But there's no sense in which that being on the rack or not is fundamental is bad. <clears throat> other than making a statement about one's desires. But the Stoics called, so just to, I suppose, explain a little bit more for people who may be less familiar with this, Stoics thought there was this aspect of value called uh, preferred indifference, which is to say that the Stoics are sort of in between the Aristotelian school and the Cynic school. The Cynics thought that the only thing that mattered was virtue. The Aristotelians believe Virtue mattered, but also some other contingent aspects of your life matters to, to living a happy one. You know, whether you are respected, have a high reputation by, uh, with other virtuous people and so on. Um, and uh, Stoics sort of fall in between. They think that virtue is what fundamentally matters, but there are this class of things called preferred indifference. Uh, all things considered equal, it's better to be healthy than rich. Uh, or sorry, it's better to be healthy than, than not, better to be rich than poor. Um, so th these sorts of things are preferable, but ultimately, ultimately valuable. So that's, that's, a, that's a traditional view. It's preferable not to be on, on, be on the rack, but it's not, doesn't make one live uh, fundamentally a, a worse life. Interesting, yeah. So, I mean, this, the emphasis, I guess, uh, I guess, then is that you can sort of have some kind of, um, you can find some kind of value in every situation, not necessarily happiness, because I suppose that that I, what we would call happiness nowadays is more the, the Epicurean ideal. Um, uh, it's more the sort of ataraxia, but uh, the, the undisturbedness of the, of the Epicureans. But um, and the, and the pleasure principle, the idea of head and of the of, of the of the Epicureans. I, I wanted actually, we're talking about a lot of things at once, which is good, but um, I wanted to go back a little bit because I was talking about um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you know a really popular and well-researched style of therapy in modern psychology. Um, but I know you've also written a little bit um, in this context about uh, ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy, and the 
the technique there and the emphasis there, even though it seems to have come out of CBT, so it shares some of the presuppositions. The emphasis there seems to be on sort of, you know, becoming friends with your thoughts, sort of letting um, individual thoughts come and go. But then there's this further emphasis on commitment, uh, commitment to your values. Mm-hmm. So it's, it seems to be one of these schools of thera- modern therapy where it's kind of like feel the fear, but do it any, anyway. So, you know, you may feel anxious about something you have to do, but then you think, no, no, no my, my value set, or like what I really want to achieve in life is this. So then you do it. And, and that does sound a lot like stoicism, right? Right. Yeah, I think it fits very well with stoicism because I think uh, the contemporary view of what's wrong with, say, a lot of negative emotions are very common for you. They all, all that feel bad. Uh, but the what uh, both acceptance, commitment therapy, and stoicism would urge is that it's not just that they feel bad, but that they prevent us from living the life we want to live. To live, and ACT has a number of practices for, say, accepting particular negative emotions, and then, nonetheless, living in accord uh, with your values. Um, and that fits very nicely with stoicism, where you can still have these negative initial reactions or particular bad feelings, but what matters ultimately are your more considered judgments and how you express those judgments and in, in your decisions. Okay, so, um, yeah, so one of the big uh, questions with any kind of um, intellectual history, I suppose, is when we find these parallels and when we find these similarities between different schools of thoughts, say, uh, stoicism and acceptance of commitment therapy, is there a direct influence here or is it just that human beings in different times, times and places you know, having similar brains and similar issues, similar problems, will come up with the same ideas time and time again. So which one is it here? Do you, do you think there's any kind of link between ancient Stoicism and these modern therapies, or is it just sort of happenstance that they, they came across some of the same solutions? Well, with the, some of the precursors to cognitive behavioral therapy, like rational emotive uh, therapy, um, say, which is... I, believe invented by a fellow named Albert Ellis. Ellis was explicitly influenced by Epictetus in particular um, and would cite phrases like it's not things in themselves that harm us, but our view of them, uh, which is a very common stoic line from Epictetus, also appears multiple times in Marcus Aurelius' meditations. Um, ACT does not, as far as I know, the people who develop, have developed and extended ACT have not cited the Stoics explicitly, though they do have a number of Eastern influences. Um, so I would say at, at best, there's, an, there's a very indirect influence of the Stoics on uh, the development of ACT. There is always the interesting question, suppose Alice had never stumbled upon Epictetus, would he have come to the same ideas? It's not totally impossible to think he would have. Uh, I think uh, it's, especially this view about emotion is not unique to the ancient Stoics, even though they are perhaps unique to the extent that they uh, emphasize it in their, in their work. So yeah. yeah, not totally unlikely. 
So you mentioned some sort of Eastern influences and going back to this Buddhist meditation thing, it was, it's, it's been very interesting to me in the course of my own life that I was sort of raised as a Christian and brought up in the West. And, and then there, there seemed to be a phase, say, in the 90s and the early uh, 90s, where really the only people who were talking about meditation and working with the mind directly were Buddhists or maybe people from sort of a neo-Hindu direction. It was all sort of Eastern, and you almost had this very strong idea that kind of Westerners didn't do mysticism. And I think, you know, if you if you look at the history of that, it doesn't seem to be right. There is a lot of mysticism in the Western tradition and the Christian tradition and, and, and others. Um, but it seems like that wasn't emphasized or it was left behind. And, um, and then there's this other interesting effect where I think a lot of people in the West have looked East and they thought, oh, you know, it's all... So mystical, and if you go to India, you have these mystical experiences. And of course, you know, people in Asian countries are, you know, like people everywhere, they're working. And even when, in terms of the religious practice, if you go, if you go to Thailand or whatever, and you go to a, a, a temple or a monastery, you know, there are monks who are very interested in, you know, in meditation and they very much apply themselves to meditation. But often in secular Buddhist practice in Asia, meditation isn't that strongly emphasized. In fact, they look at some of the Westerners and think, Wow, you guys, it was some of the Western Buddhists, I think you guys are really into meditation. Um, yeah, so I suppose what, what I'm getting at here is, um, so modern Stoicism, and especially in the way that you've taken it with this app, uh, it's kind of become this Western spiritual tradition. Now, do you think the Western Stoic community is doing this sort of on purpose to try and find a spiritual tradition that has Western roots? Or is it just something that comes naturally from growing up in the West and being exposed to these texts? And, and, and what's, the, what's the relationship with all these Buddhist meditation apps and this Buddhist meditation movement? Are, the, are there modern Stoics trying to sort of copy that? Or are they, uh, are they reacting against it? What, what, what's the relationship with that? Well, I would say modern Stoics have different relationships to uh, say, westernized versions of Buddhism. Um, a number of people, say, who use Stoa also use other meditation apps or have a history of using other med meditation apps that are uh, inspired by uh, Buddhism. Um, and yeah, I think there's a, a range of different views on that as to why sort of Stoicism has an appeal to people that maybe Buddhism doesn't. Is that, is that what you're getting at with the question? Yeah, I mean, that's, that is one question, I suppose. So I suppose there is a set of people who they obviously are able to get headspace and go to the Zen center, but instead they choose to engage with the modern Stoic community. So yeah, maybe that's the way of putting it. So why do they go for modern Stoicism rather than Buddhism, I guess is one question. Yeah, well, personally, I, so I used apps like Headspace quite a bit. Um, when they first emerged. And I always wish there was something like uh, Headspace, but with Stoicism. And uh, after a while, it occurred to me that this thing wasn't gonna be built by itself. And that was a pretty good person to build it. Um, and a lot of people have felt that way, uh, I have discovered. And why, well, yeah, why is that? I think it's in part because Stoicism is connected with a philosophical tradition that emphasizes 
rationality, philosophical, and that Western style versions of Buddhism do not. I think uh, Western styles of Buddhism often are, you know, already emerging in cultures that are fairly uh, rational, as it were, and initially focused on the more mystical elements. Um, and I think Stoic philosophy has some amount of mysticism in it, and it is uh, life philosophy in, a, in the way that uh, religions are life philosophies. So it has a number, number of overlaps, but of course it's, uh, it has a, a deep philosophical tradition to it that is uh, distinctly Western. Yeah. So I don't know, if that, I don't think that makes it better per se. Um, like maybe there are some upshots and particular philosophical beliefs that uh, I have that Western Buddhist don't that I find a lot more plausible. But uh, I think in a way it's an aesthetic that can attract a particular person, a way of thinking that's more natural to people who may find the uh, Western versions of Buddhism harder to grasp onto. That's very interesting. Yeah. So I, I agree. I mean, there's obviously a very strong emphasis on reason in Stoicism, in ancient Stoicism, especially. And uh, I mean, even in, a, in sort of types of empiricism, sort of theories about the world, uh, where I guess modern Stoics, have, to, to a great extent, had to jettison the stuff about the, um, you know, the, the Stoic cosmology and the cycle of universes and, you know, conflagrations that destroy universes and then universes being reborn and stuff like that. But no, I can see there's a strong emphasis on rationality and stoicism. It's interesting to me because I guess I sort of left Christianity partly because I started to find some of the main narratives just, you know, literally unbelievable. And so then I was looking for some kind of rational faith and like a lot of Westerners, I thought, oh, that's Buddhism. But then it's very interesting because, you know, I think maybe some of the Theravada schools, they can be seen as syllogistic, you know, like the Four Noble Truths, mm -hmm. in a sense, you know, quite, quite rational, quite reasonable, like, you know, assuming you kind of go along with them. But, you know, like, they clearly sort of steps in an argument just to some extent. Then, um, you know, one of the major schools of Buddhism, which has really made it in the West, is Zen Buddhism. It's quite big in California, obviously. And that, that all got mixed up in its, in its Chinese phase with Taoism, which is, I would say, an extremely kind of anti-rational uh way of thinking so so yeah i could understand how you might come to that and think whoa i don't understand this at all uh i'd like to do i'd like to do something else um okay so thinking about doing something else i actually wanted to um there's more topics along these lines that we can probably talk about in a, a bit later but i actually wanted to invite you to sort of lead a short meditation if you if you would um, just anything along the lines of uh, what, what kind of thing people might find on your on your app, like some kind of stoic um, meditation. Sure. So we'll do a meditation that's called a view from above meditation. Uh, this term was coined by a French philosopher named Pierre Hadot, who did a lot of work on how ancient philosophies were philosophies of life, you know, views about how to, how to live the best uh, human life. And they had a number of spiritual exercises with them. And these are one of the spiritual exercises that he uh, brought out. So let's do that. Um, yeah, so typically we start these sessions by 
asking people to ensure that they're in some place where they're able to meditate for a few moments and then take a few deep breaths if you're able to or if you like close your eyes So this is a visual contemplative exercise. So start by picturing yourself wherever you are meditating. You know, just imagine looking down on yourself from the ceiling, perhaps. And now visualize whatever city you're in and larger perspective by considering how thousands of others are acting around you. And zoom out even further and picture urination. Just imagine looking down on the millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of lives, whatever it may be. And to the extent that you can picture the earth and the small amount of space you take up on it. And from this perspective, from this view from above, ask yourself what your role is. What is your part in the larger picture?
And if you're struggling to think of anything, just don't overthink it. We're in many different social relationships. One role is to be a good friend, be a good child, a good parent, a good employee, a good boss, a good citizen, whatever it is. Bring those to mind. And from this perspective, and with your roles in mind, ask what fundamentally matters. Often people find that once you inhabit a larger view, it's easier to let the trivial fall away and focus on what's important. With this in mind, just summarize any thoughts you may take away from this exercise. and bring your attention back to where you are now, wherever you are, meditating, contemplating. And take a few deep breaths. And if your eyes are closed, open them. So that was a view from the above exercise. Great, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'll just, I suppose I'll just tell you what I kind of noticed about it. I think it's uh, very interesting. My first uh, impression was, have you ever played Assassin's Creed Odyssey? You know, you can, um, if you haven't, you can toggle to like an eagle's view. So you're suddenly seeing things from above. So I kind of thought of that. And then um, when I was thinking of these um, astronauts who go up into space and they see the earth for the first time as a whole, you know, and it's this great spiritual experience that sort of puts things into context. Mm -hmm. So I did feel kind of humbled in a good way, though. Not in a kind of um, crushing way, but in a kind of like, uh, kind of cheering way, you know, actually my issues whatever they are my problems like that aren't that great in the large scheme of things but um I, it's interesting because i also noticed that um some of the stuff you were saying later on about you know what, what what's your role in life that it, it had a quite a civic orientation i thought you know with regard to what are you doing in your life vis-a-vis uh, -vis other people and um it strikes me that uh, i've done some for example meta meditation you know the loving kindness meditation in the in the buddhist tradition especially the theravada buddhist tradition mm -hmm. and i think that um it, it's quite hypothetical really i mean it's very much especially in the way it's um 
the way it's presented in the West is like, let's just do this as an experiment, you know, like project loving kindness to people. But it's almost like you don't really need to follow up. Just like, just like do it as, an, it as a psychological experiment and see how it makes you feel. Um, whereas this one seems to be more kind of hands-on, like think about your, your role in, in, in various social networks in your village and your, in your city. Um, is that, do you think that's right? Yeah, I think it's concrete. I think with this exercise and that's called the contemplation of the sage where one contemplates a role model, it's important to do the visualization aspects of the practice, but also picture specific actions one might take. And contrast it a bit with meta meditations. It's less focused on uh, feeling per se. So I, I know different forms of meta meditations might revolve around feeling compassion for oneself and then for others, and then sort of branching out in a specific way. It's less about feeling compassion per se as thinking about, okay, what is my role here? What are my, the things that I should be doing to be a good person, to put it uh, bluntly? Mm. A number of people have found med meditations very useful, mm. um, but I think there is always the risk that it's too focused on feeling and has the, um, you know, I don't think feeling a particular way is usually a, a blocker for acting any particular way. Uh, I think that's a, a, a possible trap a number of people fall into. Right, so um, it's interesting because it uh, brings me back to something I wanted to talk more about, which is um, Stoicism and Epicureanism, because uh, yeah, as I said, I was just teaching this course about the history of political thought, and we had a one week where I was talking about what I call these Hellenistic worldviews. You know, there were various Hellenistic you know, worldviews and you know ways of thinking about life in the Hellenistic period, philosophies of life. Uh, and I was saying to the students that these two ones that became especially popular, Stoicism and Epicureanism. And it seems that uh, Epicureanism at bottom is is about pleasure. I mean. Um, uh, Epicurus in the letter to Minoicus and elsewhere, he's very keen to stress that it's not libertinism. You know, this is the great misinterpretation of Epicureanism. It's not just about pleasure in the sense of you go and have an orgy, you take loads of cocaine, or you drink lots of alcohol, or whatever. It's more uh, avoiding disturbedness of mind. So you, you're trying to reach the state of ataraxia and disturbedness. Um, all the same, it, it does seem to be true that um, kind of like classical utilitarianism, maybe utilitarianism ultimately is about individual states of mind, right? The ultimate aim is everybody being chill or everybody being undisturbed. Um, whereas Stoicism has this more, uh, more of a strong emphasis on, on virtue. Do you say that's about right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, is an accurate description of Epicureanism. Of course, Epicur Epicurus was had this view about what the good was, which is the pleasurable life. And these additional empirical views about maybe the way to get there. And that was not through the uh, view where, you know, we don't live very long and so we ought to marry and party and so on. Rather, it was, as you say, more of a focus on tranquil pleasures. Um, 
So he has that also an empirical type view about how to get to the more pleasurable life, um, which is for Stoics, those are one and the same. What is good is virtue and uh, you don't need that you know, empirical beliefs about how, how to get there. Uh, nothing special there. Right. So, I mean, I was kind of thinking out loud in the, in the discussion section with the students, uh, and I was saying, you know, I think in some ways Epicureanism is uniquely or, you know, um, outstandingly something that goes together with liberal individualism in the sense that, you know, if it really is just about your individual feelings, you know, you're feeling better, you're feeling good, you're feeling undisturbed, then uh, that's very much something that I think uh, very much a worldview that people have today, especially in the more developed West, right? It's not really about, I think a lot of people more and more are rejecting these big religious narratives. I mean, the you know, rate of belief in traditional religions seems to be declining across the developed West, although not elsewhere in the world. Um, and so it, it's almost like I would expect neo, a neo-Epicureanism to be like the big thing uh, at the moment. And I, I don't know if you've read this Stephen Greenblatt book about Lucretius, The Swerve. Um, I have not read that book. No. I recommend it actually. I mean, it's kind of a popular take on, on Lucretius and the discovery of Lucre the, the one manuscript of Lucretius by Poggio Bracciolini. But mm. Greenblatt also has, you know, his own views. And I, I think it's totally legitimate. And he's, he's done a beautiful job of kind of weaving them into this narrative. But he basically is taking this sort of anti-Christian, anti-clerical view. And the idea that, you know, Epicureanism is a, is a philosophy that allows for pleasure. There's even this uh, scene where I think Poggio goes to like a, a bathhouse in, in medieval Germany. And he starts to think, oh, this, this is like a bathhouse in the ancient world. And, you know, we can have various types of sexual pleasure that the Christians are denying us. And so that's kind of where Stephen Greenblatt takes it. But I, I, I kind of finished that book. And, and the, the book ends with this sort of almost triumphant quotation from Thomas Jefferson, who writes in a personal letter, I am an Epicurean. So, mm -hmm, yeah, as I say, like in some ways, I, it's almost surprising to me that we're not all Epicureans nowadays. And, and then I think, because I, I, uh, I, 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 I was never really into sort of modern stoicism myself, and I just sort of got interested in it really, really recently. But now that I'm looking around online at your stuff, and there's the, you were on the Sunday Stoic podcast, there's Sunday Stoic podcast, there's the Daily Stoic podcast, there are all these big figures who are publishing books that sell pretty well about modern stoicism. So, so what is it about that? Like, because in some ways, modern stoicism seems like a hard sell. It's about virtue. Like, who, who talks about virtue nowadays? So, so if I'm right that modern stoicism is a much bigger thing online than modern Epicureanism, like, what's up with this? Uh, yeah, it does seem right to me that stoicism is much more of a phenomenon than modern Epicureanism is. Yeah, it's an interesting question why that is. I would guess that part of it is historical. Epicureanism fell out of the uh, out of fashion with Roman elites relatively quickly, although it did persist among uh, different parts of, of the empire. So there was no sort of Mar uh, Marcus Aurelius as an Epicurean. There are no, no accounts of that, uh, really. And there are a few are sort of foundational texts, if you will, that we have today. Um, so I think that's uh, probably one key reason why we don't see a modern Epicurean movement. And then there's uh, another key reason may just be that the ideological space is, is 
anymore. We have utilitarianism already. And that, you know, what's the large difference between utilitarianism and Epicureanism? Maybe some additional views about how to live the good life. Uh, perhaps maybe there's maybe there's not not so much there. Uh, by way of either like a persuasive persuasive account or something persuasive in the, both the rational sense of persuasion and also these more rhetorical sense that maybe there's there's nothing else to really latch on or and, or build a movement. Yeah, so so there's those aspects, and then I suppose another aspect that's just coming to mind now is that. Uh, Epicureanism emphasized the garden more than the city, which is uh, an aspect of, which is, I think, one reason why it was not as appealing with uh, Roman, you know, aristocratic elites as, uh, as Stoicism was. Yeah, I wonder also whether... Um... It's right that there's far fewer texts from ancient Epicureanism and sort of one of the only big ones we have, you know, Lucretius's De Rerum Natura. I mean, I think it's a fantastic poem. Um, I love teaching it, but there's a lot of physics in it and there's a lot of kind of bad physics, you know, I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing, you know, he's, he tries to explain everything in terms of atoms in the void because for the ancient Epicureans, uh, you know, one source of mental disturbedness is religious beliefs, even though they thought the gods did exist, but they, they were just sort of not that important. So one path to kind of chilling people out is to sort of explain to them that nightmares are just the projections of at or atoms sort of randomly flying around the place. And Zeus isn't really hurling thunderbolts at you. That, that thunderbolts can be, lightning and thunderbolts can be explained by, you know, clouds uh, bumping into one another. So, I mean, that's all well and good for the ancient world, but I think that nowadays when we pick up a text like that, like the average punter, you're not really interested in like the ancient world and ancient physics and stuff. You're just sort of like, whoa, there's a lot of like weird descriptions of atoms that sort of are, in some ways they seem to anticipate modern physics, but in other ways they're just strange and wrong. Uh, you know, like there's a bit in Lucretius where he says, the moon is, some people say the moon is, um, actually really big it's just far away but that's obviously nonsense because look you can tell how big it is <laughs> you can see it in the sky so there's just these parts of it which are just sort of wrong i think that even if you look at like diogenes of oinanda you know this text this guy rich guy basically put up a, a monument for to epicureanism at the end mm -hmm. of his life and even that has a lot of physics in it um so i think I think, you know, there's, this, there's too much of an entry cost in, in some of ancient Epicureanism before you get to the actual ethical and psychological teachings. Um, but so one, one interesting thing about Stoicism as well, modern Stoicism, uh, I find is that, yeah, it does seem that there are people who are involved in it who are interested in, in virtue. And as I say that, it strikes me as unfashionable in some ways. Um, and... Uh, I mean, I, as I say, I, I, I don't really think I was ever really part of this community. Uh, I'm getting more into it now. I think it's really interesting. But um, because I didn't really look into it very deeply, I was just vaguely aware that some people really don't like it. And I, and I found that a bit confusing. You know, like I think Donna Zuckerberg has a bit about it in her book. Um, and the idea is this: they're these modern Stoics and they are sort of right wing and they're all emphasizing masculinity and things like that. And um, I don't necessarily get that vibe. I mean, when I've looked at stuff online, it seems to be more um, the psychological emphasis. If there's if there's any masculinity in it, it's it's not really that sort of chest beating. It's more kind of 
uh, you know, dealing with your emotions. Um, so, so is that perception that I have accurate that some people really don't like modern stoicism? And if so, why do you think that is? So I personally have not encountered that too much. I do think there are some pieces, some maybe pockets of people uh, who have argued some passionately against stoicism or probably more accurately a clump of things of which they think stoicism is a part. Um, so I wouldn't overrate how, I would, yeah, be careful not to overrate how dominant uh, these, these sorts of reactions against stoicism are. Um, that being said, I would say that, so critiques like uh, Donner's, Donna Zuckerberg's are mostly a question of stoics with a number of other things she doesn't like, some of the things she doesn't like for a good reason, um, which is, you know, trolls on Twitter with uh, different classical statues, uh, Hossine, uh, right-wing nonsense or something of this sort, of which there's very, uh, I've not encountered anyone who's used the Stoa app who has those sorts of attitudes. Um, so given how many people you have used Stoa, it wouldn't be that surprising if there are one or two. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that mostly it's just a, a critique by association. If I want to make another, um, there are some people who are make more substantive critiques of Stoicism, but are perhaps less passionate. And one very common critique is that Stoics are too passive. And by focus, having this model of what it is to live well, they have a view that is either not good for people who are being oppressed or even worse, is useful for oppressors. So the model would be, all you need to live well is to be virtuous. Therefore, you know, if you are, uh, you know, committing rights violations against someone, you can just give them this doctrine. And the thought is, okay, this is a, a you know, sort of thing that one, one should be suspicious of at the political level. Uh, so that's, that's maybe a more substantive critique one could make of, make of stoicism that's less of a guilt by association type charge. Yeah, although that one actually kind of immediately strikes me as unfair just uh, in comparison with more quietistic ways of thinking. So I, I think that, I mean, you know, even among Buddhists, there are people who stress that Buddhism is a religion and it has social aspects to it. And you shouldn't just hide on your cushion as I've heard people say, but I think you can go to, you can go to some very quietistic places in the Buddhist tradition. You know, it's a tradition that uh, reveres sort of extreme types of hermits and the Christian, the Christian tradition has that too. And Stoicism, it seems like, even in that meditation we just did, there's actually quite a strong emphasis on sort of engaging with the world. And maybe this is one of the reasons why um, it sort of competed Epicureanism even back in the day. Because as you say, for the Roman elite, you know, just just sort of chilling out in, in a garden really wasn't the way forward. I mean, Lucretius couldn't couldn't even convince the addressee of his poem, uh, Memmius, right? Um, so yeah, I think that, I don't know. I mean, imagine that, that you're into modern stoicism and you're also into whatever philosophy floats your boat, maybe it's sort of contemporary notions of social justice. We see that those two things could be compatible, right? That you you get into a state of mind where you think, you know, the virtuous thing is to, I don't know, um, reduce, uh, help climate change or, 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 or whatever it is, reduce inequality. 
And it seems mm-hmm. like these techniques could help you with that if that was your thing. Maybe if that's not your thing, it could help you with something else too. But um, it seems like it does have compatibility with, with political action. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, yeah, of course it's compatible. I think one of the key cardinal virtues is justice, and that is, uh, you know, a key part of justice is political action. Um, uh, at the same time, I think one kind of speech the Stoics, ancient and modern, should be wary of are more expansive views of harm. So, like particular views about you know speech being harmful or uh maybe views that are focus values other than truth uh i think stoicism has probably going to lean more on the uh it's very important to come to true views side of things instead of better to say uh avoid discussing particular topics because they might be offensive or something like this mm-hmm. so i do think that probably behind i think there might be there are more substantive disagreements with people who hold particular kinds of social justice views uh and stoics um but there's plenty of potential overlap but climate change is a fine fine example i'm sure there are many other uh other things from economic policy to you know policy over scientific research what have you Great. Okay. Um, so we're sort of nearly at an hour, which is, I think, I always think it's the ideal amount of time for a podcast conversation. But there's one other thing I wanted to fit in, which is that besides doing all this great work with the SOA app, you're also engaged in a website, which is now on Substack, I believe, called the Classical Futurist. And obviously the title, in, in, in the title, there's a lot of uh, great possibilities, just like with the title Ancient and Modern, you know, a lot of great possibilities. So that's right. So, so what's the classical futurist and, you know, what kind of classism does it involve? What kind of futurism does it involve? Yeah, class, the classical futurist is all about seeing the future through an ancient lens. It's about taking uh, ideas that started by three of us uh, that we like, um, that are both in that maybe the futurist, uh, type uh, space and also ideas from the classics and seeing how they might fit together. It's a bit of a intellectual uh, adventure, I would say, more of a matter of exploring particular ideas than uh, promoting a specific cause. But I think that there's a lot of great work going on in futurism where that's thinking about uh, big picture questions like what is the trajectory of official agents or different questions about what's the direction of history and then of course a uh, number of questions that the ancient tackled you know their views on technology or their views on the rise and falls of city-states and so on so there's a, a basically this is the the thesis of the classical futurist is to take some key insights, key uh, intellectual starting points uh, from the ancients and see how well it meshes with our contemporary world and especially with questions that are related to the future. Yeah, I think, you know, today's conversation was a great example of that because, you know, um, I was going to say something like, as we've shown, but in a way it seems sort of so obvious that we haven't really had to do much work. Um, these a- ancient um, concerns about happiness, unhappiness, the meaning of life, what you do with your thoughts, your painful thoughts, your pleasant thoughts, 
all of these concerns which were central to ancient Stoicism, but also Epicureanism and other ancient um, philosophies and religions and ways of life like Christianity, you know, all these things are still of, of huge concerns to humans. And, you know, then we have maybe modern analogs to them and cognitive behavioral therapy and other approaches. And we can also kind of play with the, the ancient stuff that we thought was maybe past and gone. We can, we can revive it and sort of talk about it and take the bits we like and maybe leave some of the bad physics behind. And you can make apps with that. So I would encourage people to um, right. to look up the Stoa Meditation app, uh, which you can find anywhere you get your apps, I suppose. And also the classical futurists. And you can just also Google Caleb Ontiveros, who um, has been our guest today. So thank you very much, Caleb, for this uh, for this great conversation. Thanks for having me. It was a blast.